0: You're listening to Frankly My Dear, the podcast, I'm Fariza, and I really just want to hear from you, women with a story to tell, no lies, no drama, okay maybe just a little bit, I hope you like it here, let's get started. Hi everyone, Fariza here, and this is Frankly My Dear, the safe space for the women in our communities to have honest conversations. Now, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you would realize that I'm not an influencer. My cat's Instagram page has more followers than I do, but I was always interested in understanding why we follow certain people, what influencer culture is all about, and how social media has really changed the last few months, particularly because so many of us are online more often which relates to a lot more opinions being shared to put it nicely Uh, which is why i have with me today an anthropologist and ethnographer who studies internet culture what does that mean i don't really know that's why she's here to explain it to us dr crystal Aberdeen, who's joining us from perth hello and thank you for being on the show
1: Thank you, Farisa, for having me. I'm so happy to be here on your podcast.
0: It's so nice to get to speak to you. Um, If you could introduce yourself to the listeners, um, I'm sure many of us, including myself, were kind of wondering what does it mean to be an anthropologist of internet culture? What is it that you do?
1: I am professionally a research professor in the university, and it is my full-time job to conduct research on young people's practices on the internet. My broad job description is an anthropologist and this means that I socially um, engineer experiments, surveys, studies or sometimes just do deep ethnographic dives in Mm. order to understand how young people practice routines, um, abide by certain guidelines, formulate everyday cultures as they interact with each other online. And I do this primarily through a human perspective, therefore anthropology. What I specifically do is focus on influencer cultures, practices of internet celebrity, online visibility, as well as social media pop culture. I've been primarily doing this since about 2008, Mm -hmm. and I turned this into a full-time professional job when I started to pursue my postgraduate studies, finishing my PhD, and then formally joining academia. Regionally, most of my research began in Singapore, where I was born years and years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mostly focused in the Asia-Pacific region, as well as in the Nordic region.
0: Now, many don't know this, but we actually don't know each other personally. And this is the first time that we've spoken. But I first got to know you a few years ago when you were conducting research on minority influences in Singapore. And one of the people you interviewed was Hirzih who if any listeners don't know, is a popular Malay influencer in Singapore and he actually started out on YouTube, I'd say maybe 10 years ago. So since then, Dr. Crystal, I've been following your career. I don't know if that's what people do on Instagram, follow researchers, but that's what I did. So I want to know as an anthropologist, what made you dive deeper into influencer culture and internet celebrity? What was it about this topic that you're passionate about?
1: Right, so there are always two versions to this um, story. There is the professional version and then the actual real version that probably most young Singaporean women in their 30s can relate to, assuming Mm -hmm. you are also my age, Ben. The professional version that is nice to tell everybody is that this is genuinely a very understudied area of research. When I began publishing on this topic around 2011 and 2012, most of the research on internet culture focused on techniques um, that focused on platforms, on structures, on systems, and algorithms. And there were quite a lot of studies also focused on the users, but they tended to be congregating around blogger communities, online forums, online fandoms, etc. A lot of women who emerge as role models and leaders in this space tended to be discounted in the literature, despite being able to earn a really, really sizable amount of income The work that they did, you know, Mm -hmm. being very human online, relating to people, telling stories about your personal life, sharing parenting and fashion tips, all of that was deemed to be less important and less relevant and therefore not very valued. So out of a feminist ethic of representation, this was research I was very drawn to do.
0: Mm, Okay, so if I could summarize the more professional answer would be that you felt there was a gap in understanding young female internet influencers, primarily in this region, who have not been studied, quote-unquote, as in-depth as other online communities because their profession wasn't taken quite as seriously uh, when you were first starting out. So, what about the actual reason why you got into this?
1: Now, the true Blue Singaporean story was that when I was in junior college in, in school, A lot of my friends began to talk about the phenomenon of live journal shops. This really brings us back to the days pre-dot-com, pre-online shipping, pre-online payment. Mm -hmm. Back in those days, live journal blog shops were blogs where you had to painstakingly scroll through every single post. If you see an item that you like, you left a comment, the seller would contact you, send you their bank details. You would probably walk to an ATM machine and then manually transfer money to them. And then around the late two thousands, i banking became a thing, so you could transfer money online. But still, the sellers were very lo fi DIY folks, either selling secondhand clothing, mm-hmm. or they were making small trinkets like jewelry, putting them on live channel. Mm-hmm. This eventually blossomed into the super mature block shop ecology first on Blogger, WordPress, and then later on on dot-com sites. So the online fashion scene as we know of today really had its original roots in LiveJournal and WordPress in Singapore. And at that time, a lot of these blog shop models and block shop owners were very intriguing to followers and to customers. You know, I've always heard in JC, you know, in the bathrooms, and the toilets, even in university when you're queuing up for food, people's conversations ranged from, oh my god, did you get that dress in time? Did you manage to make it to the launch? You know, my lecture ends at 2, but the drop is at 2, so I have to leave earlier, get to my laptop and camp out there to buy something. But slowly, the conversations veered towards focus more on the models and the owners. For example, so-and-so influencer or so-and-so block shop owner went to this restaurant over the weekend and it looked great in her photos. Or so-and-so block shop model seems like she's got a new exercise routine because her collarbones are looking sharper. And all of a sudden, these women that we see online became organic role models for how to be good young women, consuming at a comfortable pace, but also being up-to-date with how to be a good partner, how to keep yourself in check, how to keep fit and healthy. And I was really, really intrigued by the allure of these women to other women around them and therefore decided to deep dive into blog shop cultures. Eventually, these women whom we call bloggers and blog shop models became Instagrammers, tweeters, YouTubers. And today, the more generic term for them is influencers.
0: Right. No, you know what? It's so interesting because... um I, I don't know if anyone else has actually tried to set up a blog shop. Like my cousin and I when we were teens, we we tried to sell our our old clothes online. it It didn't work out, but but I mean, I think we all kind of attempted to do something similar in that sense, like live journal. I mean, that was basically my life online. and <laughs> And I completely like think, yeah, I, I, I see the, the flow from starting out as blog shop models and then moving on to becoming influencers. Um, let's start with something simple. Are all influencers content creators and are all content creators influencers?
1: This is very tricky. And to answer this, I'm wanting to make sure I keep that diversity in play. It really depends. Okay. It depends on the genre, it also depends sometimes on the country sometimes even on the gender. So all of these different words carry different connotations and some of them are highly valued by some communities and others are disavowed or viewed with disdain. So assuming that we are now looking at the Instagram influencers seen in Singapore, mm. to be known as a blogger has got very high currency because that denotes that um, people know you from the pre-explosion of influencer cultures. They remember you from your blogger days. You've got legacy and reputation from the mid-2000s. And the likes of, say, um, influencer Yen KK or Yutakis um, or Eric Lim, these are veterans in the industry. And when their fans refer to them, they sometimes still use the vocabulary of blogger, which is quite treasured. But then you also have this explosion of a lot of YouTubers in the Singapore scene specifically whose contents may not be as wholesome. There's a lot of sexualization, especially Mm -hmm. of very young women and their bodies. And many of these YouTube videos, sometimes it's clickbait, sometimes it's just the basis of their content. In which case, in these spaces, people may associate being an influencer with being very crass. I'm mm-hmm. sure so many of the people listening are very familiar with this um, nickname, an influenza with a Z A, to refer <laughs> to influencers that you don't really agree with or whom you don't really feel carry any content or skill so in these spaces such creators may prefer to be called youtubers so to answer your question briefly all of this is very political i would say all of these people by default by function are influencers in that when you input a message into them whether this message is to market hair conditioner or human rights they know exactly how to amplify this message through vehicles of comedy, humor, sometimes scandal and virality, sometimes memes, sometimes good interpersonal skills. And they can carry this message to the exact target group, cutting through all the internet white noise. They are all also content creators, but to different degrees. So some of them may be chiefly focused on taking selfies, outfit photos. Well, others are true and blue, you know, set designers, script writers, camera operators, directors, when they do entire scripts for YouTube. So the degree of the creation of the content is also different. Mm-hmm. And some of these influences may take offense if you adopt a label when others don't.
0: Hmm. When you mention that everyone is essentially an influencer in the sense that they're able to convey a message effectively, whether it's to market a product or to rally behind a movement, then it seems that influencers do have influence, right? and <laughs> can sway um, the public one way or the other to a certain degree uh, with some being more influential than others. On that note, um, speaking of influencers, I want to talk about a few incidents surrounding prominent influencers in Singapore. Uh, there's this whole genre of shaming influencers, right? whether um, you know, it's, it's due to influencers say offensive things in different areas, it seems that the followers are always split between two parties. So they're the ones who become fervent supporters and the ones who shame. Uh, what are your thoughts about influencers who are controversial but also have become household names?
1: Yeah, this is studied quite intently, mostly from the American context, and we want to transpose this for the Singaporean context. Here, I think there are three main practices that we can look at. The first one um, is to remember that influencers are everyday ordinary people, and all of us come with our own bias and our own interpretation of things. So it could be that sometimes these offhanded comments, these shaming scandals are genuine missteps. And as humans who are ready to have our minds changed, be amenable to conversation, these public apologies or these public call-outs are sometimes a very important educational intervention. And that's that. Sometimes many of these scandals are just these. Genuine practices, genuine missteps. The second genre are when some influencers together in collaboration with other people, brand partners, their managers construct controversy. And in my research, I've been privy to quite a few of these incidences from as early as around 2008 to 2010. I have been in rooms where literally influencers who are the best of friends, you know, I've sat down in a room going, okay, maybe on this day, I will put out this controversial statement or tweet. And then on this day, this is how you respond. And there is a whole script to it. But I don't want people to be surprised by this because it's not too different from, say, the scripting that goes on on reality TV or on talk show programs. If you are someone who's been schooled in media projection or film school or script writing, this is something that goes on behind the scenes in order to create some sort of plot line. And these scandals and controversies sometimes do occur, whether or not it's to raise the profile of two different people. Sometimes it's staged and at the height of it, a sponsor may interject and say, here's the real message we want to pull through. Sometimes these messages can be quite meaningful if it's something to do with, say, internet decorum, addressing cyberbullying and the like. But Mm -hmm. other times, the sponsor's messages really fall flat when they don't really fit. And then audiences as well, some of them are quick to point out that, yeah, sure, this is really smart, really savvy, I took the bait, well done, guys. Whereas others may say this is super distasteful and when exposed in the early stage, I think we're so familiar with this phrase, the social experiment. Many influencers <laughs> would backtrack saying, oh, no, no, it's just testing waters, wanting to see how people would react. So this is the second genre of the
0: practice Okay, if, if I could interject and quickly summarize for our listeners in the context of getting caught in controversy, you're saying that the first type of influencers are people who genuinely make mistakes, right? And so this can be seen as a learning experience for both the influencer and the audience. And the second type, uh, which I'm really surprised by, are controversies that are orchestrated and actually created for the sole purpose of being talked about online, Um, Okay, that's really shocking. It makes me question all the drama that's been happening and asking myself what's real and what's not. Okay, so um, and what's the third type of influencer?
1: The third one, and perhaps the one that you might be gearing more towards, are influencers who intentionally caught scandal and controversy over and over again because that is their brand. In the same way that we have some influencers who really pour their heart and soul into parasocial relations, into communicating with followers, in the same way that some people are really honing their skills in great photography for fashion or great DIY um objects or super exotic humor or very niche humor that speaks to target groups. Mm -hmm. Performing scandal and controversy is just another content genre for some influencers. Mm -hmm. And for them, they buy the adage that all publicity is good publicity, even if it's negative, even if it's very controversial. But I should also say that this is really a privilege in the industry that's not open to everyone. You do have to have a very stable and loyal follower base who understand your style and your aesthetics in order to still stand by you, regardless of the inevitable backlash that will come. You also do need to have a level of financial security um, and trust and faith that your clients and your sponsors will stay by you if any of these may blow up. Um, And there is a small group, a small handful of influencers in Singapore who really do rely on this technique.
0: Mm. For some of us who don't agree with problematic views of influences that we actually like and follow, what can we do as participants of social media?
1: There are a few things to consider or a few um, pathways you can take. I'm not one to prescribe the best one. So based on research, all of these have different outcomes. Mm. I would say that with the very politically conscious young people in Singapore today, you know, hats off to Gen Z. I don't remember being so active and vocal as a young person. But of course, they are products of their time. They grew up with the internet. They're also growing up in a space and a time where their predecessors, you know, millennials and Gen X, have really paved the way for such conversations to take place, even if they're online. Um, A lot of these young people often take to pointing out or calling out when something is wrong. And we have to remember and understand that call-out cultures are originally some sort of a weapon of the weak. You rely on a very large mess of people who would otherwise only have a very small voice and through your waves of small voices try and point attention um, to an issue that is not right in order to get support from other people to get their buy-in. These sorts of techniques on social media are borrowed from many other ecologies, one of which is probably the K-pop social media fandom. K-pop fans are really supremely great at social media manipulation. And I don't mean manipulation in a bad way. Manipulation here just means that they've got the skills and the savvy to augment or to understand algorithms and platforms so that they work in their favour, therefore resulting in trending hashtags on Twitter or allowing their K-pop fans to rank highly on the charts. So in the same way, many young people in Singapore who do want to bring attention to specific issues do draw on these techniques on social media to get trending and to get vested interest from other stakeholders or other influencers to amplify their messages. That is great, but that is really step one. You're bringing attention to an issue. But what happens from there? There needs to be some sort of an educational aspect to this or a dialogue session mm-hmm. where maybe bystanders who are observing the controversy um, above and beyond understanding what's wrong understand how to correct this or what they can do in order to broaden their horizons or to be open to other viewpoints. They don't necessarily have to be persuaded but we also should make available to them the different sources of information that they can consider in order to make this decision. So that engagement is also really important. It's good to have that anger and that swag and enthusiasm in step one but step two is really all the education and the negotiation.
0: Right. okay, so for everyday users who might have observed an influencer stepping out of line or sensing the first spark of a controversy, you're saying it's good to feel strongly to call out the influencer step one and then to be armed with resources and information so they can follow through with getting supporters and making change. And what's next?
1: Step three, most of the time this is lost when trends fall out of cycle. But it's also really important for there to be some sort of recuperation or redress. So at the end of the scandal, what's going to happen? Are we deciding as a fandom or as a social media community that we don't want to give um, such incidents any more airtime? Are we deciding that from now on, these are new barometers where it's no longer okay for us to, say, make trans comments or to make offhanded racist comments because we're more Mm -hmm. educated now. Or is it okay if someone comes out to apologize, make amends, or if a sponsor decides to issue a formal statement? There has to be some sort of finality to that action there in order for any of these scandals to be, quote-unquote, a successful and functional episode. Um, So that something is gleaned out of it. So this would be what I consider one cycle in such scandals. Mm. In the Singaporean sphere, you know, we're a very, very small country but so many of us are on the internet. So at any one time, there's so many of such scandal cycles happening simultaneously for different target audiences on different platforms. And often it's a wrestle of attention to see which which of these gets elevated to the front page of the newspaper or the front page of Mothership, who these days is very into tracking these scandals and then passing off social media comments as news articles. So a lot of these are going on in the background for different niche groups. Um, But if you are a person who is involved in this or who would like to be more socially conscious, then remember the three different steps that is Mm. open for everyone to participate in.
0: It's really interesting that you brought up um, call-out culture or cancel culture uh, because for influencers who spark controversy like this, there is always like an opposite reaction to it which is the activation of SGWs or social justice warriors. But it seems of late that there is a negative connotation to the word or the term SGWs. Why is that? The negative connotation, I'm not sure I really
1: agree there is one. I think it depends Mm -hmm. on who you're asking. If we are asking the influencers who for a very long time were able to squash feedback, suppress any criticism, but now realizing that the, the internet is demotic, many people can air their views even if they're unhappy then from this influencer's point of view, after being attacked, they may call out social justice warriors or call out culture as being harmful. Whereas for the other people for whom this is their only redress, for whom this is the only way for them to be hurt, then this is a completely empowering tool because for the first time in a long time with very little resources and money, with an internet connection and some understanding of how social media works, anyone gets to air their causes or air their thoughts um, on the internet in order to draw encouragement or to draw support for various events. So a very good example of this, if we're going back to influencer cultures, is the many fundraising initiatives by our influencers. Whether this is um, Muna and Hirzi and Raya Relief for migrant workers on Instagram, Mm. or um, Pretty Please and her friends in the Utopia group doing fundraising and and educational videos also directly fostering back to the migrant workers. These are influencers who are using their platforms and leveraging on so-called call-out culture or cancel culture. You know, the very excited young people who are looking to pursue a course and support it. They are speaking to these audiences and using their influencers in a good way. Mm. So to these influencers, um, their perception of what calling out is or what cancel culture is, is different. A lot of times, I think recently, in the last fortnight, mainstream media outlets have been running quite a few stories calling out cancel culture and call out culture. But remember again, these are giant conglomerates, mainstream media artefacts, sometimes in many countries, assisted by government funding or control or power or censorship, Mm. so it's really Um, a battle of power here when such a great mainstream power calls out the merits of small, small voices on social media and say, cancel culture is toxic. Mm. Probably toxic to you because you no longer control the narrative. But for many other people, this is very empowering. So it's really two sides of the coin. Um, It's really how you perceive this practice and where on the spectrum you stand on.
0: Wow, that's cool. It's like the term hype beast. I didn't even know it, it had a negative connotation. It started <laughs> as a word to explain someone who's into streetwear, but then now it's evolved into a derogatory slang word for someone who wears streetwear only to make so make a social statement to appear better than everyone, to impress other people. So I-, I guess you're right in that sense. It it really depends on who who you're talking to, who you are, and, and what are the kind of channels that's that's available to you as an SJW.
1: It's true. And also, these words have an evolving lifespan. So, hype beast is such an interesting word because with GE 2020, Dr. Tan Ching Bok is now lovingly known as the hype beast Akong on Instagram. <laughs> and that's a reclaiming of yeah. the word. So, that's why I said from the very beginning, it really depends on like the country context and the genre because all of these words carry different connotations. And even in a small space like Singapore, one GE over nine days was enough for this word to be reversed in its value and connotation. And now it's being lovingly embraced again by young people on the internet.
0: Right, right. And how savvy has Tan Cheng Bok been to embrace this term hype beast to connect with the younger audience? Um Moving on to a specific subgenre of influencers, you mentioned that minority celebrity is one of your areas of interest because, as a minority yourself, being a Malay woman, it's something you feel strongly about. Um, first off, what is minority celebrity?
1: Right. So, minority celebrity draws on a few academic ideas, but if I were to distill this um, for our everyday listener, Think about influencers who exist in a specific culture and remember that for most cultures in society, there's always a dominant mainstream group, whether by the quantity of citizens, you know, the majority, or whether by power and control, say you have more representation anywhere from in parliament to the media to the workplace. Minority groups would be those that are marginalized, either by power, um, by status in society, by access to resources, or even by numbers. So likewise, minority celebrity refers to a group of influencers or celebrities who belong to this demographic, but then who use this standpoint on the margins as the entire branding for their social media persona. This means that unlike many influencers who can sometimes fashion themselves after a genre, whether fashion or food or beauty, minority influencers and minority celebrity are really basing a lot of their public profile on themselves, their background, Mm -hmm. their demographic, their lived experiences, sometimes literally down to their body and their colour in order to fight for representation, but also in order to appear legitimate to their followers. So minority celebrity, in brief, They build and commodify their fame based on their own marginal position in society. They build validation and they celebrate minoritarian values by making public some of the challenges, the inequalities um, that they experience within the system, within the structure, with everyday experiences. And by role Mm. modeling such difficult conversations, they do many things. Number one, they give airtime and representation that would otherwise not be seen. So they are leveraging on their influencer platforms in order to do so. And many minority influencers in my studies so far in Singapore have explained that, you know, when we were first starting out, we needed to play the game in order to be spotted. But now we're slightly more comfortable. We feel that we can afford to be more political because our rice bowls are sort of secured. The second function of such minority celebrities is to serve as sort of like a counseling station or a mothership for lost souls. So people who do mm. feel that they resonate with these issues or who want to talk about issues relating to their marginalized group may flock to them, whether in agony and style to share testimonials or to ask them to amplify messages. And here we see so many of the instances of say, hijabi women or our friends in the Sikh community who have been discriminated for their headdress or their attire. Sometimes appealing to influencers to amplify their messages um, and to get some intention on social media before the news picks it up, before they get some sort of formal redress in the workplace. And the mm. last role and the last, um, I think, very, very important job of minority celebrities, it's so much of a burden, but they are also very important for expanding the boundaries and the thresholds for what can be publicly discussed and the thresholds of morality so, for instance, I would say that maybe five years ago on YouTube, it would be so common to see many Singaporean Chinese YouTubers um, don on blackface, put on mm. um, very mm, caricature accents and costumes to play a Malay magic or an Indian man. And when they draw up scripts, you always see these uh, awful stereotypes. You know, the Malay man is the one who is lazy at a mutt, no, the Malay Mina is the one who's a bimbo. Um, The Indian man is the one who is uh, the public stranger you're supposed to be wary of. When minority celebrities themselves do it, when you make fun of your own culture, if there is a political message here about refusing an internal cringe or to push back against narratives, that can be empowering. But when you see a Chinese group of influencers do that with no real message but only for comedic value, it becomes extremely offensive. So five years ago, this was probably very rampant on the YouTube space in Singapore. But today as the conversations have evolved, um, if these were ever to return to the scene, many followers and fellow influencers would be quick to point out that this is no longer acceptable and minority celebrities have certainly been making the space here for these conversations to occur.
0: You know, I do agree that minority celebrities have been able to subvert stereotypes around their own culture and race. Um, and do it in a way where they're able to shape their own narrative. So that, in effect, can be very empowering, right? Um, In one of my earlier episodes, I interviewed a hijabi model uh, who is... She's an Instagram hijabi model who told me that non-Muslim brands hardly ever work with her and that she gets asked to remove her hijab to score a job. For minority influencers like her who are trying to make a name for themselves... Uh, who may have fallen into a niche, what is your best advice to them?
1: Right. I'm not a marketing person. I'm (laughs) a really geeky research professor who just knows a lot about this field from my practice and research. But based on models of interviews and case studies over more than a decade, um, depending on the route that such minority influencers want to take, there are a few options. Mm -hmm. Some of them can afford to stick to their guns. Um, And they would refuse job offers like that. They don't want to stray too far away from their personal beliefs and ethics. In which case, they more often than not start to accumulate followers who admire them for this practice. Sometimes sponsors um, or behind the scenes supporters who are happy to um, give them a boost, whether in their profile or to open up doors in networking in order that they may be fit with a great client or a client that's willing to accept them. Some of these item minority influencers have managed to get around this by unfortunately um, feeling that they need to be the one token influencer. So many Malay influencers in Singapore tell me every time they go for a beauty event, they know it's their same group of Chinese friends and then them and then the Indian girl. Mm-hmm. And they understand and know that while they are the token addition here for this brand, at least they are there. And while they are there, rather than just being happy and celebrated, they often try and then make interventions and inroads for other people like them to be included or to try and speak to these organizers and change their mindsets. There's still other minority celebrities who just construct a niche following all together and are happy to be there. All the messages that they push out fall directly on their target audiences. And sure, it may be a smaller following, but chances are it's probably also going to be a more loyal following. And in terms of commerce, it means that your viewership translates more to click-throughs and perhaps also translates more to purchases. So it's not always a numbers game in these spaces. But I do think that minority influencers really do have to put in a very, very big effort above and beyond other influencers. Because remember, again, this is still entirely based on your background, your personal values, and your life. And when something like that is so transparent out there on the internet, you are always open to more critique. If there is a scandal happening or a viral incident, your followers will ask why you haven't commented. If there's anything vaguely related to your, your skin or your racial or your religious community, followers are going to ask for your commenting. So there is no running away from this and it does require a lot of investment and sacrifice.
0: Hmm. you know i just realized i don't think um, in terms of minority influencers i don't think a malay podcaster and a malay anthropologist in internet culture has ever met and did an episode together i'm pretty sure this is the first time we should celebrate this well then us i'm like
1: high-fiving you through my screen in a socially distancing <laughs> manner so let's celebrate this when we get to meet in person
0: for oh, sure um what are you currently working on right now
1: I'm currently working on quite a few fun things, but specific to Singapore and the audience we might have, my newest research has been looking at meme factories. This has been so brilliant. Um, These are aggregate groups or concerted groups of many people, or sometimes just a very super talented one-man group who is in charge of churning out, curating, and displaying memes on various social media. Um, being a meme scholar is so great because the field is always ever-changing, but also you really have to be kept on your toes because in a space like Singapore where there's so many ob markers and where meme factory owners tell me they don't want to be Poffmart or they don't want to be served the Sedition Act, it really takes a lot of skill in order to embed political messages, social commentary into vehicles of text and images that would otherwise just be ha-ha, funny, hilarious material So there is a skill involved here and it changes with the times. It also changes with the demographic. That's one of the main big things I've been looking at recently. Mm. Um, Above and beyond that, I've also been looking more specifically at minority celebrities, especially those in Singapore who may be more marginalized because of some social norms. So for instance, um, Malay TikTokers, LGBT influencers in Singapore, Um, Sometimes even elderly influencers, some magic, some really old uncles and aunties who are occupying a niche there. I'm really wanting to focus on the diversity they bring to this space. Mm -hmm. Above and beyond this stereotype that all influencers in Singapore are just young rich women and uh, influencers just partaking in vain things. There's nothing wrong also if you do happen to belong to this demographic because everyone is a function in this space. But I think many influencers in Singapore are now beginning to feel the pressure from fans and followers um, that it's no longer enough that you push out commercial messages or make money off modeling wares in your body. You do have to stand beside some sort of ethos. You do have to have some sort of meaning making behind this high commerce, Mm. whether it's messages around sustainability um, or body positivity or the other types of social conscious um, movements there are. Many younger followers, especially around Gen Z, are looking for something above and beyond mere commerce.
0: For someone who's really keen to explore internet culture from a research or academic point of view, uh, what career advice would you give them? What career
1: advice? This is so tricky. (laughs) I think my first comment to be a responsible person is that you do not have to be an academic to do research as a living And I say this being also a junior early career research academic. I graduated from my PhD less than four years ago. The job market is awful in Singapore and also around the world. And I would hate for anyone to feel that to be a real researcher, you need to be working in a university as a professor. I think a lot of these research skills are exhibited so well on the internet these days. Our best independent journalists, our best freelance writers, our best movement collectives, groups who are organizing relief for so migrant workers, for LGBT um, youth, for underprivileged mothers in single homes. Um, all of these rely on research skills. So it does take quite a bit of um, organization and dedication. It may not always come with the paycheck you're looking for. But there are ways that you can work with the confines of um, these types of other jobs I've mentioned and include more of a research aesthetic of aesthetic research practice mm-hmm. there. Um, I would also say that in the Singapore context specifically, doing research is not just Googling. Doing research is not just being open to the resources that are open to you in a library. So our specific context is that the information diet in Singapore is somewhat restricted. There are books that are banned. There are keywords that may not pass through certain servers or ISPs, depending on your institute. So you do need to spend a bit of effort doing corroboration or understanding the wider information ecology, maybe in your specific field or in your specific area of interest, in order to do a bit more of a contextualizing. Remember that even though Singapore is a very small country, we do have a very big global reputation. So every time there is a small scandal in this tiny country of just 5 million people on maybe an obscure Facebook page, when it gets circulated and trended and makes it to the top tabloids in the UK or the websites of top US news outlets, that is the global image you're portraying to people. You know, that all influencers are just scandalous, Mm. that all of our online personalities only talk about race. Some of that is great representation. When we want to talk about issues of systemic racism that are not being addressed, But others can just be white noise in that we are devaluing and suppressing the actual value and work that a lot of our internet culture does and provides. So I would say read meaningfully, read wisely, read slowly, um, but also read critically, especially in the Singaporean context.
0: Dr. Crystal, thank you for your time. It's been wonderful having you here. I'm going to remember all of your advice when I become an influencer myself. Um, That brings us to the end of this episode. And to all, thank you for listening in. This is Frankly, my dear. I'm Fariza and you have been honestly lovely. I'll see you next time.